I get a chance to speak at night. It's been a while, but uh, it's a real pleasure to dip into this series about from the, the book of Acts. I get Acts chapter 2. I was actually hoping I could preach on the Ananias and Sapphira one where they get killed. Uh, the young guys want to have all the fun, though. So now I, I, get, I get a great passage, Acts chapter 2, and it's one um, that really has been life-defining for me, uh, and it's particularly in ministry, um, as we've seen what the Lord's done, not just in the 20 years I've been in, in full-time ministry, but the years, the years before that, and the adventure um, of myself being an atheist, uh, Christian, um, or atheist, Christian, Baptist Christian, Pentecostal Christian, uh, Baptist Christian, uh, Church of Christ, Christian, somewhere it doesn't matter. We don't do lines in the Church of Christ, so we're just all Christians again. So it was a, a fascinating journey. But I've had a lot of experience, and our book, um, which is one of our great experiences, just about to start soon, called Refresh, is really all about uh, our, our theology and the practice. I actually invested 10, 11 years of my life um, full-time trying to discover the answers to some of the questions that arise out of this passage tonight. What is it that the Holy Spirit is actually trying to do in the human soul? How does he do it? What matters to him? What's his agenda? And how does he do it? A bit of, you know, a bit of a topic. Uh, because I couldn't find it was being given justice anywhere at the level to which this little black duck wanted to find the answers. Because I'd experienced so much um, and seen many lives that hadn't experienced really anything and wanted to piece all this together theologically. So um, the interesting dynamic that goes along with this topic of we're talking now about the Holy Spirit and the influence that the Spirit has in our life and the influence that the Spirit has in our life that differentiates us from other human beings. Uh, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian sometimes isn't so much what they believe. Uh, it's the presence of the Spirit in our life and his enablement to work with us in partnership to do what we can never do on our own. And so what we do as Christians is we often find our sweet spot, our sweet spot in our church style. So we'll go to a church that suits us because it does things the way we'd like them to it, it fits our personality. Often we create church in our own image, which is sort of the wrong way around, but you know what I'm talking about there, where this is my style, this is my preference, it's not too far out, it's not too exciting, this is the way I like to do it, and we all birds of a feather flock together. But what that essentially does, it's got strong points, it's got weak points. What it's doing is showing what the church can look like uh, if, if the best of humanity comes together and does their best effort at making it work in the way they want to see it done. We're, we're, living, we're living out of our own... Uh, substance, Paul would say, out of our flesh uh, without necessarily relying on the Spirit because you're making the church in our image. Right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a very fine line, and I say this sort of thing very tentatively because I know we've all got good hearts and we're all striving to be faithful, but if we haven't crossed that line from faithfulness to fruitfulness, then what difference is the Spirit making in our life? If the Spirit's not making a difference in our life, it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. It just means, uh, by Paul's definition, there's a natural man, those who haven't got the spirit whatsoever. There's a carnal man, this is all in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 and 3, who has the spirit yet still lives from the flesh predominantly. And then there's the spiritual man, uh, these days we would say the spiritual person, who lives from the spirit. So the carnal believer uh, lives for God admirably, faithfully. The spiritual person lives from God, fruitfully. And that difference is so profound. And I could just spend so much time just pulling that apart. But I want to get into the text. And we're talking about uh, Acts chapter 2. So we're going to start, if you've got your, uh, your apps open, you can, we're going to go right through uh, verse by verse. But there's, uh, when I do that, I want to, I've got to pull this apart because what happens on the day uh, of Acts chapter 2, for me, is the pivotal moment. Obviously, Jesus' death 
incredibly significant. His resurrection, incredibly significant. But the day where it changed for the human soul, where one day we were like this, the next day we were like that. For me, this is the pin in the timeline where the whole world has never been the same. And it's no accident that it was on this day. So it starts off in verse 1 where it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Okay, so let's just drill down there. What is Pentecost? You may know this, but let's just flesh it out and make it uh, clear. Pentecost literally just means 50. So it was 50 days. It's also called Shavuot. Have I got that uh, pronunciation right, Sandy? Uh, Shavuot. It was the the festival or feast of weeks. Um, uh, They used to call it the Feast of Weeks. It's connected to the harvest. um, And they got this from uh, Leviticus 23, 15 and 16, where the Lord commanded them and said, count seven weeks from the second day of Passover. So seven weeks is 49 days, but it's from the second day of Passover. So it was the day after Passover, count 49 days from there. This will be 50 days Pentecost, 50 days from the Passover feast, which was when the lamb and the blood was smeared over the doorpost. So it's a direct connection to Passover. And it's the second of three festivals. There are three festivals that throughout the uh, Torah they were commanded to give in their wilderness time. One was Passover, which was all about redemption. There was this one, the Feast of Weeks, which if you boil it down, is, is, it's talking about the, the fruitfulness of life, so that, hence the harvest. And it's also combined with calling. So the fruitfulness of life as it, as it integrates with the calling upon our lives. And so this is actually the same day, uh, same concept, and it's the same place that we're going to look into here with Passover, that Moses received the burning bush calling, was on um, at Horeb, the, the place of burning fire was called. And so um, and Pentecost reflects back on this day uh, when Moses brought down the... Um, the Ten Commandments. So there was Passover, Feast of Weeks, and Tabernacles. So Tabernacles was all about following God in the wilderness, about God's presence. So these three themes which were core to the Christian life. One is redemption, one is fruitfulness and calling, and the other one is God's presence in our life that guides us day by day. These were the three pillars of walking with God. They're the three pillars that they had to remember. So Pentecost was the second of those, and it was subsequent to Passover. Without the Passover, you can't have the fruitfulness. Okay, but without the fruitfulness, um, Passover, the, the effectiveness in our life isn't there. Okay, so let's have a look at this day. Uh, importantly, it was a day that reflects back to Sinai. Remember, Moses was called at Sinai. That's where the burning bush was. It's also the place where Elijah was called by God uh, after uh, his time in the wilderness. He went into the cave. That was Sinai as well. And so they're back at Sinai, and um, it's a, it's, they've come out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea and that's 50 days from the time of the, the blood over the uh, doorposts. And God has been taking them through in Hebrew language through a process of betrothal. So you'll see certain phrases that get reflected in the New Testament um, as this betrothal process kicks off again. So if you, if you read it in depth through the Torah, uh, the first five books, you'll see terms like, you are my treasured possession. And this is all pre the Ten Commandments. And it's a betrothal phrase that the Hebrews knew very clearly, oh, this means that. So when, when God is speaking to them, because they didn't have any written uh, word of God at that stage, all they had was a betrothal process with this God that they'd heard about. And so they, they were called a treasured possession. He was saying, you're called to be a kingdom of priests. And they get through this process and they get to this point where it's um, the equivalent in our terms of a prenuptial agreement. So it's just before the, the, the actual wedding feast itself. And it's called the ketubah. And in, in their process of betrothal, the ketubah 
was like a prenuptial agreement. It's like, here are the, here's a contract. Here's the boundaries around which this marriage relationship is going to be formed. And so the Ten Commandments were the ketubah. And the ketubah was, you know, have no gods besides me and, and have the seventh day as rest. These are, these are the conditions under which we're going to engage in this relationship where my treasured possession becomes my bride and you'll then become the kingdom of priests. And so Pentecost Day was the day on Sinai when the law was given. And so Pentecost that we're celebrating and talking about here was the day that the Spirit was given. So there's absolutely no accident there. This is why God, uh, Jesus said, go and wait. So he, he walked with them for 40 days. Then he said, go and wait. It was only 10 days further. So it was now the 50th day. So he's, he's deliberately saying there was a day when I proposed to all humanity and you got the law through the ketubah, but now you're getting the spirit. So that which was law is now spirit. That which was um, a commandment now becomes fruitfulness. And at Sinai, if you'll remember uh, from the book of Exodus, 3,000 people died on that day because they, they rejected the, the uh, proposal and so on. On Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. So you see the, there's a direct mirroring going on where all this equals that, very clear signals to those who were present. And it's a fulfilment uh, of Hebrews 10, 16, and, which was a, a, a quote of Jeremiah 31, 31, where the, God says, the law is written on your hearts. It's a prophetic time where he says, that which was given at Sinai now becomes embedded in your spirit, and that which we, you couldn't do by obligation, now you do through overflow. So there's a huge contextual piece you can see in this whole thing. And so uh, the law then becomes a spirit. So we pick it up in verse 2. It says, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and, the, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one. Okay, now that might seem like, what's the precedent for that? That is just an outrageous scene. Well, it actually, it was, but again, it was a direct reflection back to Sinai. So there was, this, is, this equals that. This is what's going on. So Sinai, what happened there was a type, a shadow of what was to come. This is what was to come. So if you look at Exodus 20, which will be up on the screen, you'll see why this equals that. And it's talking about the this, this scene just as the Ten Commandments were coming. It says, when the people saw thunder and lightning, and now I've just got to parenthetically say there, when it says saw um, that's a, it's a real struggle in, the, in translating what was actually in the Hebrew to the English because it was like saying they witnessed, it was like saying they, they actually heard what they saw. And, and so the, the, in the English translation, it's hard to bring it together. The people saw thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Key moment right there. So that... The ketubah's coming. The Ten Commandments will be written. And we have this thunder and lightning piece. But the people say, uh-uh, I'm not, we're not engaged in this. This is too much for us. And the people put their hand up and, and went, this, is, this, this whole marriage proposal thing, you are freaking us out. And Moses, you go talk to God like that. We want to keep a distance. And um, that term the kingdom of priests, you'll find through Scripture, never appears again from that moment until post-Acts because essentially it was like they rejected the proposal but whereas Acts chapter 2 is a fulfilment of the proposal again. And it says in the Hebrew Talmud of this time, the Hebrew Talmud is like the, the Jewish traditions of their faith. It says about this day that God proposed to all creation with 70,000 tongues of fire. 
See, tongues of fire, Acts chapter 2. You can see what's going on here. Let me go even deeper again because the words that we translate through Exodus 20 are thunder and lightning. Thunder, the word for thunder is kole, uh, K-O-L-E, kole. But it actually says kole, kole. And this is the only place in uh, our translation of the Scriptures where that word is actually translated as thunder. That's the only time we, we do that. Every other time it's, it's translated as voices. So it's actually, you could say it's a misinterpretation of what the Hebrew is actually saying there. It should be voices. And the, of lightning, it says they, they uh, saw the thunder and the lightning. That word in the Hebrew is lapid. And it says lapid, lapid, kole, kole. And lapid actually doesn't mean lightning. It's the only, again, it's the only time it's translated as lightning. In every other instance, it's as, guess what? Flames. They witnessed flames and voices. And God proposed to all mankind with 70,000 tongues of fire. So you can see on the day of Pentecost, when they're seeing all this stuff come together, they're going, right, God's proposing again to all humanity. The, the betrothal process has been reignited and off we go. And, uh, and then the kingdom of priests is now mentioned again through the writings of Peter and so on. So you can just see the, the, why this was so important for Jesus to say, just, just hang in another 10 days, guys, because this has to mean a lot to a lot of people for a long time. Okay, so what is this new form of engagement? Uh, where, this is the moment in, in the timeline where we go from God speaking externally to God now dwelling internally. This is a whole new ball game, completely out of the realm of understanding for these guys. And you can see from what happened next that it got a bit out of control. It got a bit messy. This is the first time the spirit on mass has dwelt within a human, I don't know how you describe it, a human physical body. There's body, soul and spirit now. God's getting completely integrated here and he likes it there. So it goes on in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And I have spent a lot of time researching this because this is the, probably the, the single most, not so much anymore, but it, it was recent, up to recently, polarising issue in the church through history. Because what happens here, the, the significance of this changes everything. What's going on here? They're full of the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in other languages. Is this an intrinsic connection? What's going on? Why? What is this filling? Because Jesus didn't promise filling. He promised something else. He uses a term called baptism. And, and yet if you look through in a lot of depth here, because I had to get this one right, and I spent a lot of time many years ago on this, what essentially is happening here is Luke, who's written obviously Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2, he's using language here where he's changed language from baptism to filling, or what we've translated as filling. But what he's saying is this thing that you're now witnessing in Acts chapter 2 is what Jesus was talking about in Acts chapter 1. He's promised baptising, and that baptising looks like this new word he's using, filling. And so this equals that. And the word he uses for that is really important for us to understand because we only have one English word for filling. And so we, we, we tend to translate, well, every time we see filling, we say, well, this is all the same thing we're talking about here, like Ephesians 5.18, be full of the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, get full of the Spirit. It's a very different word with a very different implication on it. This word where it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit is a, is a Greek word I'm going to pronounce wrongly, but it looks like pletho or pletho. Uh, and it's, this meaning of the word is very specific because it means to be imbued, uh, influenced by specifically to fulfill something. So it's different to an Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, be full of the Holy Spirit. 
That's, that's talking about being full and saturated to the point of influence. It's talking about inner character, slow in coming, long in staying. What they're talking about here is a specific power, a fullness of God that imbues you to fulfil a certain function. And you can't, you can't theologize this one away. There's two different conversations going on here. One's about character. One's about competence. One's about fulfilling something that you could never fulfill on your own. One's about becoming a Christ-like person. This is talking about the power to fulfill a specific um, function. And it's often fast in coming, fast in leaving, in practice. And so you'll see it throughout the New Testament, the same words used in, say, Luke 1.41, Elizabeth was filled and she prophesied. Acts 2.4, which we just said, filled, they were filled and they spoke in other languages. Acts 4.8, days later, Peter was filled and preached. Acts 4.31, another couple of days later again, they were all filled and they spoke the word of God boldly. So when you see that, you understand, hang on, this isn't a once-off event now because we can wrap ourselves in all sorts of theological knots here. These guys were full of the Holy Spirit, it looks like, three times over the space of four days. This is not a once-off second blessing event. Now, you may notice it the first time the Lord blesses you with, with power to f- fulfil a task. You may notice it more time number one. There may be different increments of it, but this is not, oh, if, have you got it yet? Have you experienced it yet? This is a lifelong lifestyle of being filled for a function and being filled again. So you can be full of the Spirit many times a day, every day of the week, uh, to, to fulfil the functions that God has for you to fulfil. And so this was the first, but it wasn't the last time these guys were full of the Holy Spirit in the sense of the use of this word. So what then is this uh, filling? As I've said, it's the most polarising topic around. I've, I'm, I must know now many thousands of people, as I should at my age, uh, that have been uh, filled with the Spirit in this, in this way. There's, there's, I was going to say there's no mistaking it, but sometimes it's very subtle. There is no any single manifestation, as we've just seen from four scriptures. There were four times where it says they were filled with the Spirit with this word. Not all of them were resulting in being in speaking in other languages, right? So we don't need to be say oh, this always has to be connected to that. That's very simplistic theology, and it's actually not accurate, and it puts us in boxes. Um, so. Uh, I mean, I spent plenty of time in the Pentecostal world and, and, and say nothing against that, but the Pentecostal theology is centred around the fact that if you are full of the Holy Spirit, they'll just they'll use the term baptism. You're baptised in the Spirit. It happens to you once and you will speak in tongues. You will, ha- you will have the gift of, of other languages. And the irony of that is they see that all the time. Uh, and so it's easy. What we do is we tend to create a theology around our experience. And sometimes it's not a matter of the, the intricacies of what we believe. It's how much we believe it. And it's interesting that in an environment that, that will hold to that practice, they'll go to a lot of trouble to create an environment where that's almost expected. Or, and you can, you can feel a little bit abused at the other end of it if you don't feel like you're jumping through the right hoops. Because, well, I, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, but I didn't speak in tongues. You know? And so people get themselves locked up in all sorts of situations. But my view on this is pretty clear that, that Acts 2, what we're seeing here is not a template to say you, you are baptised in the Spirit and you will speak in, in another language. I think there's, there's much more on offer than that. Uh, and yet I've seen hundreds of people, many hundreds of people, be full of the Holy Spirit and receive the gift of other languages as well. Um, so I won't talk so much into that particular gift, um, just that it's not the only gift. It's not the only manifestation of what it looks like to receive uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
And we've got to understand that this is the kickstarting of a church. It's a bit like how do you prime the pump? How do you, how do you start the engine so the engine can keep itself going? This is a, this is a kickstart event. And even Paul, um, by the time he's written 1 Corinthians, you read the way he theologizes through. There's one baptism, one spirit, and it's almost like he's, he's changed tack from, from how Luke describes what's happening here. And it's almost like the church has settled down and the engine's running now. And, it's like, and he uses all sorts of different language uh, to talk about that. The reality is, though, when, when this sort of feeling comes upon our life, and I'm hoping I can, take, I can debunk the myths of it so we can all go, this is available for me, because Peter later on goes on to say, this is for you and your children and all who are far off, this experience of the Holy Spirit. We can all have this, and it's a natural part of life uh, as a Christian. Um, but the, the consistent thing about this empowering by God's Spirit is that you will do something. Something will shift even if it's for a short space of time, it's, it's power to serve. It's power to meet a need that is not being met now, it's a, and God sees the need. Think of it in terms of uh, the wineskin analogy that Jesus used. He said there's wineskin. Uh, if the wineskin can't flex, the wineskin will burst. The wineskin he was representing there was, there was there's the wine, which is God's spirit, God's grace. God's grace is always there to meet the needs of a thirsty world. And he's saying you are the wineskin, and the wineskin's role is not to burst and just just let everything loose because it's all chaos. It's not to get drunk like in the end of the day, the Acts 2 guys ended up, are these guys drunk? They were newbies. They didn't know how to, how to handle responsibly, you know, what they had their hands on in that sense. But they learnt from this later on. And the wineskin, as we are the wineskin with our way we do church, the way we do our practices and doctrines and such, and we are meant to meter out, to meter out well the grace and the wine of the Spirit to, the, to a world that is thirsty. And he always provides the wine that the world needs. And, so, and that's the key to understanding why all of a sudden were there other languages coming out, because that's what the world needed. And so we should be open to the fact that God, whatever the need is, God will empower his people, those who have the faith to believe it and to require it and to work in it, because the, these giftings is, are connected directly to faith. There's an element of faith. Romans 12, 6, use the gifts in proportion to your faith. So the the extent to which we trust and rely on it, the, re- the extent to which we believe it, is the extent to which we see it. So you can, you can be a Christian 60 years and never experience what this is saying is normative because the culture of the church that we're in at the time, the, the, the practices of your life haven't created a space for God to fill. Now, and I'm saying this to a church, we're a conservative bunch in the sense that we're Queenslanders, aren't we? We're, if I did a poll, 90% of us would be introverted, thoughtful, you know, we like, give us the word. But that's our sweet spot. That's just what comes naturally to us. So we, we make our religion in our image. But there's got to be something supernatural about it if it's normative, as the Scripture says, normative. So this experience of the Spirit, I believe, and through my own practice and for thousands of people over the years, is normative to Christian life. So why tongues? What was the big idea with this other language thing going on? And I'm not going to talk now about the... Um, the gift of a prayer language. Now I'm talking about the gift of speaking in another language. It says, it goes on in verse 5. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? That wasn't a compliment, by the way. Uh, They were like saying, aren't they all from Dolby and Roma? Aren't they all a bunch of bogans? Who are these guys? They're uneducated, mate. They don't know, you know. And uh, they're saying, how can these guys speak in this beautifully articulate language about the goodness of God? 
It goes on, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt. See, I've got a gift of interpreting this scripture there. Uh, And the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Why the gift of other languages? Because there were so many languages needed at that setting to be proclaimed. How else was God going to get the gospel out but to translate it into all their languages? They needed the gift of tongues because there were so many tongues around. The the wine in the wineskin always meets the need of a thirsty world. And that that should unlock for us something else because we, we are so constrained by the way we interpret these sorts of scriptures to say what happened then has to happen now. It has to, what we see here has to look like there. And sometimes it does, but that doesn't mean that's all that God's about. To the gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't given for us, just for our own edification, that to empower and pour the grace out of God to the world so he can change the gifts depending on what the need is at the time. What's the biggest need? He's going to give us the power to fulfil it. But not every filling resulted in people speaking other languages. We've got to be very clear on that. There's no ins and outs. There's no, you know, over-defining over how this thing looks. It's just that's how it needed to look on that day. That's what they needed. And um, it's interesting, uh, do every, does everyone speak in tongues? Put it to bear. There's another, another scripture on this. 1 Corinthians 12, 30, Paul says, do all prophesy? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So do all speak in tongues? No. You can be full of the Spirit and not speak in tongues. It's okay. Let's just lift the lid off that one. You can actually be a normal human being and, uh, and only speak one language. It's okay. Um, but do you have the ability? Could God give you the ability? Absolutely. Interestingly, um, interestingly, in you know, 2023, it's, it's been fascinating to see how this gifting has started to come back in mainstream church. We had a guy here last year, I think it was last year, came to our refresh course, did the retreat, and we set, we set stretching assignments in there. Um, and so one of the assignments is go to a church that's far more wild and radical than you'd ever be comfortable in. Get out of your comfort zone and go and immerse yourself in an environment that will just stretch you. You don't need to like their theology. You don't need to like the way they do that. The worship may be way too long than what you're comfortable, but just get yourself there and see what it looks like to be stretched beyond your normal capacity. So he goes there and, he's, and he finds his normal Baptist sort of comfort zone, like this up the back, you know, does the ironing board worship. And, um, and he's up there, but he really senses the Holy Spirit say, uh, I need you to move over the other side of the auditorium. Why would God say that? So, but he goes, hey, I'm on a refresh assignment. So over he goes to the other side of the room and he's just there. And then he starts singing, but then he's singing in English, starts to sing in a different language. Not, nothing he'd ever heard before. So this is new to me. I don't know why. I don't know what this means. And, he, and it's not like he had any uh, rational uh, understanding of why. And so then after the worship, uh, which went for a heck of a long time, he ended up sitting down and they had testimonies at the end of the service. And uh, they said, has anyone come to Christ today? That's something we should ask a bit more often, don't you think? Has anyone come to Christ today? And this guy gets up and he says, I've got to tell you what's just happened. I was sitting over there. I wasn't a, I wasn't a Christian when I came here. I'm not even sure what I am now, but I know I believe. And he says, when I was over there, some, some old guy started singing behind me and he, and he switched from, a la- from this English language into Indonesian because I'm Indonesian and I couldn't understand what was going on. And he was singing in Indonesian and he was singing the, the goodness of God and he sung, he sung why Jesus had to die and he, and he got the full gospel through the worship time and I, gave, I could only give my heart to Christ on the spot. See, that's, that's when it's useful. <laughs> There's a use to these things. 
Prophecy is the same. I remember we, uh, we were doing a course and our practice back then was to journal, uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in writing a letter to our, our participants in the courses. And um, I don't know how we started that. We just did it and it, went, and it just stuck. And, um, and I was with a bunch. I had, I had all the old guys. They used to give me the old guys because they were the hard nuts, you know. And uh, so I had all the old guys, but I journaled for them before I knew them. This, otherwise, it's, it's cheating otherwise because you know too much. So you've got to journal and, and ask the Lord to reveal things. We used to call it, it's very, can I say it, uh, reading their mail. Um, it's like they have to know this is God writing this because you don't know anything about them. And um, so I journaled for all our guys and, and I got to this guy and, and uh, I really had his journaling. Didn't know him from Adam, you know, and he just, and it, literally his words were, he just said, uh, I, can, I can only ask one question. What do I have to do to become a Christian? <laughs> he wasn't a Christian. You're only supposed to let Christians into this course. Some other, someone had signed him up and he ended up with me. And, and I just read his mail and downloaded all the stuff that had happened to him as a child in, in very frightening detail, you know. And he just said, I've got no response other than say there's a God somewhere. How do I give my heart to him? That's where the gifts of the Spirit come in. This is what the anointing is for. It's for salvation. It's for building people up. It's for meeting the needs of raw humanity in ways that you could never figure out yourself. This is actually the normal Christian life. And we can still look like us, but it's supposed to look powerful, not just the very best that we can bring in the faithfulness that we have. So that's why. That's why. So what gets me is, uh, how am I going for time? Okay, I've got to rush. Is the response. What does this mean for us? I'm, I'm hoping for some of us, I know for some of us this is norm, normal life for you. Or I've been walking the trenches for years. But for others it's like, can I dodge this bullet like I have for all of my life? You know, this topic's come up. I used to be that guy because I, uh, I was a strong theologian uh, in my early 20s. And, uh, and I could talk any uh, Pentecostal or person who's wanted to preach this charismatic line, you know, I could nail them and I could prove to them theologically they were wrong. I could prove it. I was brilliant. I was wrong. I was completely wrong. But I could prove that they were wrong. That's how stupid we are with theology sometimes. We're so determined to make it fit the way we think it's supposed to fit. We rob ourselves of the power and the experience that's, that's available for all of us. So we've, we, at some point, this, this topic for us, we need to wrestle it to the ground. It's the same as the whole topic of, is God first in my life? Well, yeah, he's first, but he's got to fit in with my work and my career and my convenience. And No, 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 no. let's wrestle this thing to the ground. Oh, yeah, but you've got to understand, I've got to take my kids to sports. I've got to do all that. I can't come to church. I've got to do all that. Yeah, yeah, let's wrestle this. Is God first in your life or not? You know, I know they're tough questions, but, but only you are responsible to wrestle it away and say, therefore, I must. It's got to overflow into our life. This one is all about response. What, if, I, if I accept the Scripture, uh, what do I have to do with it? And in, in their instance, they had the same groups of people that we have 2,000 years later. It goes on in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So there seemed to be three people there. There were the disciples who were the ones full of the Spirit and they're thinking these guys are drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Then there's, a, there's another group who are asking the question, what's all this about? And another group who are, who are mocking them. And these three groups of people are still around in the churches uh, in great strength. We've got them in our church, in every church. The first category are the wanting, those who want. They, they look at this 
And I go, once I'm convinced this is true, I want that. And it's not a selfish coveting, although even Paul himself said, covet these gifts, covet the stuff because this matters. He was prepared to say that. But it's not, it's not a desperation for that which is not mine. It's a hunger for what is mine by birthright. It's saying, I am not who I'm meant to be in the absence of this powerful life. And so they want it and they desire change and they're, and they're prepared to pay a price. They don't put any caveats on the deal and, and say, oh, if, it's, if you can do this to me, Lord, but it's not messy, then I'm in for it. But if it's going to get undignified, I'm out. They, they don't, go, they don't do, do that stuff. They just say, if God's in it, I'm in it. That's it. And that's what the disciples were like. They were early adopters and they, they followed what Jesus said without any conditions. They, they said, we don't care what the contract says. If Jesus, you're, you're a signatory, I'm there. And so they were prepared to wait for the 10 days. But, but it's interesting, the dynamic. It says uh, in previous verses that they were unified, they were committed. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were all together of one accord. It's like they were, they were many but one. The Greek word, ihad, they'd all come together. They were composite unity. There was one church, therefore there was one baptism. They were unified in one. They weren't arguing about theology. They weren't arguing about anything. Nothing was more important than doing what Jesus had said and being fully on for the deal. And so they put aside personal preferences for this, this higher cause. And so the interesting thing is, like, like, like then, when, when we're like that, um, and we'll see seasons of, of that here, as more and more of us are convinced, you, you, you find yourself there's waves and tides of this coming uh, of a preference, and God seems to move among us, and there'll be more of these seasons coming. Um, these people will buy in to the point of excess. And it's really clear for us today because these guys become an easy target because they went into excess because they didn't understand. They were, they were immature in this, they had, so they're appearing drunk. I've been in church services, I've been in hundreds of meetings where people full of the Spirit appear a little bit drunk. Why is that? Because they're not used to it. There's, a, there's, a, there's like a 12-volt me is just plugged into a 240-volt God. And it's like there's more power than I know how to contain. And you do some silly things. And sometimes as preachers, we say silly things. And we, we use oversimplistic theology. We get loose with our language and, and we lose all constraint. And we just, we do things badly. And so those who are thoughtful or on the border or want, wanting better explanation can point the finger and go, I'm not going anywhere near that because of those people. And yet the thing that we need the most is often found in the context of the people we least want to associate with. And that's what these guys were like. The disciples, they were out of control. And there's no, there's no comment in the Scripture that says what these guys were doing was right, but they, neither was there a criticism. Only the Christians would criticise. Only God's people here are criticising. What's wrong with these guys? They're mad, you know. But when you're hungry, you, you're, you're prepared to overlook the problems. We'll, we'll deal with those issues. We'll, we'll, get the, we'll get the practices back together again, but let's not get... Let that stop us getting access to that which is really, really important. This is Pentecost now. It's like this is, this is a big deal. And so th these guys, are those who want it, are more interested in faith and, and surrender and zeal and all the things that matter most to God in our relationship with him than they were in getting the intricacies of their theology right. So I'm never going to condone we get theology wrong, but I'm, not, I'm just saying don't let the intricacies of theology constrain you from what God wants for you and what God offers for us. There's a rawness. There's a, there's a, a, a deep uh, sincerity and a, and a passion to pursue God, not pursue all the presents that he gives. They're great, 
But we're not pursuing, we're pursuing him. This is a relationship and this is an outworking of a marriage proposal that God has with us. I'm coming, I'm coming close and I'm powerful and I've got things for you that are going to result from that. So there were those who are wanting. Then there's a group which is normally most of people like us, to be honest, in our sorts of churches. I call them the willing. So there's those who are wanting. They're the radicals, the early adopters, the, the, the crazy ones, you know, the ones that we want to talk about and write blog articles about. And then there are the rest of us who are sort of the willing. We're willing to go, if God's in this, um, yep, if God's in it, I'm open. I'm open, but I'm not really pursuing you know what I mean? So I'm, I've got a foot in both camps just in case it's error and wrong. And so I become pretty cautious about it and I'm taking a mental approach, purely a mental approach to this God who is spirit. So straight away what we're doing is we're saying I'm, I'm constraining who God is and what I'm willing to accept by the limits and capacities of my rationale and my thinking. What makes you think this two-litre brain is going to have capacity to understand the ways of God? It's just a bunch of neural pathways in there. It's pretty small. God's a lot bigger but we constrain who we believe him to be by what this brain could understand. But we're good people. We're faithful. We just got one foot in and one foot out. We're going, okay, God, you know my number. If you're in this, you know, send me a text. Let it, and, and what we're saying is send someone to me who gives me a word, then I'll know, or have someone pray for me and I'll fall over or something and then I'll know it's real. And so we, we hedge our bets and all this sort of thing. One foot in, one foot out. Um, they're the ones in verse 12 that says, amazed and perplexed, that's most of us, they ask each other, what does this mean? So I'm hoping uh, for those who aren't used to working in God's power, at least that question's there. What does this mean? And then, but don't let it go until you can literally uh, do what I did, 11 years. It took me to figure this thing, what's it really mean? What are the implications of this? And so it's admirable uh, to be one of the willing so long as we finalise it through to a conclusion. Have the questions, but follow them through to a conclusion. Because God's doors in our life, they're not designed to be both in and out. It's like there's a door, walk in or stay out. It's, uh, and the handle's on one side. He makes the door, the handle's on our side. He knocks on the door, we have to open it. And so the door for this into the spiritual realm is, uh, is only one way. All right, then, so there's a wanting, there's a willing, and lastly, there's those who are unwilling. And they were in the crowd. They just had a good old joke. These guys have had too much wine. I'm not having anything to do with them. Uh, stay away. Charismaniacs. Um, they're crazy. It's got to be the devil. Anyone ever heard that? It's got to be the devil. We should, actually, we should be pretty careful with that. I just, just let me say, pastorally, please don't say that. Because um, what, we, what we're, we're doing, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware I've been guilty of, of this a long time ago. I said it once too before the Holy Spirit really pulled me up. Because we have to look at the implications of what we're saying. Because we can't explain it. And if our theology says, well, the gift's finished at 397 AD or whatever, we, however we can stretch the scriptures and stuff to say that. If we, look at, if we look at a manifestation, we're quick to say that's of the devil. Just think about what we're saying. We're saying in a group, in an environment where God's people are coming together in faith, they're worshipping God, they're pursuing him with all they have, they're praying that God would fill them, and we see something that's outside of our box, but we're prepared to say very quickly, way too quickly, that's of the devil. They're saying someone who's pursuing God, praying to God, worshipping God, and the devil answered that prayer? I think we're giving the devil way too much credit for a start, and... Our, our, our devil is probably bigger than our, our God in that sense. If you've got a group of people who are passionate for God, praying to God, 
Jesus said, you know, if they're praying for a fish, I'm not going to give them a stone. The fact that we don't understand it should give us room to pause. And he, was actually, he actually drew a really clear line. He said, to those, uh, he did a miracle and, and the Pharisees said, that's the devil doing that. Very similar instance. Too quick to judge what we don't understand, you know. And he said, you'd be very careful about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So we've got to be very careful that we don't overdefine what we don't understand and say, Lord, I'm willing to learn. And there are some things that have happened. I've seen some things that shouldn't have happened in rooms that were full of the Holy Spirit. And is the Spirit doing that? No, it's man's flesh, not knowing how to work and partner well with dignity, you know, and treating people well. And so we say things that we shouldn't say and do things that we shouldn't do. It's not the Spirit doing that. It's the human flesh who doesn't know how to steward that walk really, really well. So one of our missions here is to be a church of spirit, fullness of spirit and of truth, that everything that's available in Scripture, we want it and we seek what God has for us, but we do it in the realm of safety and credibly well-trained ministers who understand, who've spent many, many years working with the Spirit, praying, understanding the breadth of, of the ways that God works in our life. And we don't put people in boxes and say there's the haves and the have-nots or, or you must manifest like this or anything like that. We just know God's presence is power and it's grace and it's love. And if you feel the presence of God and you feel loved, that's the most powerful gift you can receive anyway. And so there's different ways that we can go about this. But we don't want to be those who are too easily fall into the bucket of being the unwilling. So the question I guess for all of us ends up being what's our response to Acts chapter 2? Again, as, as someone who, who uh, unwillingly in many ways is forced to become one of the teachers um, in the kingdom, you know, I, I, had to, I had to square this away. I had to, I had to spend as, as long as it took and not let the fact that sometimes we're bouncing off the bumpers of error on the way to truth, let those bumpers stop me. Rather, they, they're there to guide us back into truth. And so... What do we do? I mean, the, the valid response for me is, is the hungry heart. The, the, the manifestation of the Spirit in this way, there's, there's a commonality about when the Spirit comes in power. There's an element of faith, but there's a stronger element, I believe, of, of hunger and a heart that's surrendered. It just says, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this life in my own strength. It's not what, it's not what you're talking about in Scripture. There's a whole bunch more that's on offer, and a lot of it comes through reliance on his power to do what you could never do on your own. And so they're the elements that matter. And if I could create any culture, if it was up to me in this, this place, it would be of surrender, of, of, a, of a knowing in a real deep humility that you can't do this in your own strength, that, you, that there's more to this Christian life than you've probably experienced and you've been invited to experience that more. And does it all have to happen in a moment? No, it doesn't. It, it happens, it's a... It's a trajectory. It's a direction that we take and we take it together and we do it wherever possible with dignity and, and with love. Um, and and if, if it's outside of the realm of being treated in a loving way, then it's already wrong, you know. But, um, but we take this journey together, but we're committed to it. And so we've now seen so many thousands of people uh, be receive and walk in this power as just a normative part of their life. Uh, it's an incredible blessing. But we never get tired of inviting people to that journey. There's more for us, all of us. So when we sing a song like, I want more, I want more, we're not saying God can be ever less because God's everywhere all the time in the fullness of who he is. He's just all, he can't not be that God. It's like he can't not be first. He's preeminent. 
It just means, Lord, we want to engage with more of you. We want to engage more with who you are because there's more power than what we're seeing. And, Lord, will you do that? It's inviting the Holy Spirit to come and have his way in our life in a powerful way to meet the needs of those around us and for ourselves. Amen? That's the hunger. So I'll get the band to come on up and we'll just, we'll just pray for a minute. And I'm, just, I'm hoping some of us are convicted to the core. You know, I'm hoping some of us are excited and full of faith. But um, you can't unlock these scriptures and then put them back. Once, once it's there, it's, you either believe it or you don't believe it, but you can't not wrestle it to the ground. So let's, have a, let's pray together. Maybe we can stand together and pray. Lord, I just have a real sense we're on the holiest of ground tonight. When we see the depth of the connection between Sinai and Pentecost, Lord, the, the profoundness of this marriage proposal that those people that day said yes to that betrothal. And then, and then we were called from that day, from the day of Pentecost, we were then called the Bride of Christ. Lord, I pray for each of us that our response would be, yes, Lord. We don't put boundaries around. We just hunger for you. We've lived the Christian life, some of us for decades. Being faithful, but Lord, we don't realise there's actually more and it's for me. So Lord, I pray for each one of us. And just in your own heart, just say your version of yes, Lord. Whatever you have for us, we long for that. But beyond that, we long for you. We don't want to be lonely in our Christian walk. We want to know the fullness of your presence. And Father, I pray that the wind of your spirit would blow again in this place. Why don't we all just invite the spirit to come, welcome him, rather than invite him, I guess, more theological, just to welcome him. We welcome you here, Lord. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you want to bless. We thank you that you want to bless these people now. So, Lord, bless them, fill them. And even just have your, as your hands are put out in front of you in surrender and invitation, just feel free to breathe in the experience of the Holy Spirit. But I've seen more people, for I don't know why it is, it's just my experience, more people seem to experience the power and the fullness in those incredible moments after they leave this sort of prayer. So I'm just letting you off the hook. You don't have to feel an experience now. Feel free to. But often people go home and they mull over this and the Holy Spirit works them over. And they find themselves bowing beside their bed at night in the days and weeks that follow and suddenly God imbues the spiritual gifts upon them or they start praying and prophesying in their bedroom at night. It doesn't matter when it happens. It doesn't matter how. What matters is our heart hungers for Him. Nothing else but Him. So we put aside our work week. We put aside all the distractions of life and say they must be subservient to this calling of Pentecost. So Jesus, will you fill these hearts again and that this church wouldn't be known as a church that just opens the Scriptures well, but that we would do that and that the Spirit's fullness comes and fills us. God, will you make us a church of spirit and truth? Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we're just going to worship a little bit now. But if you feel 
you'd like to have someone pray because there are times when the Holy Spirit comes in response to people laying hands. Sometimes we go away and we tarry like these guys did for 10 days. We just go and they just pray. That's valid. It's also valid that the Spirit comes as His people lay hands on each other. Not sure the mechanism of that, but it just seems to be as we lay our hands in faith, God lays His hand on them as well. It's a a prophetic act. So that's why people get healed at the laying on of hands. And gifts get released at the laying on of hands. So we'll do that. And so if you'd like to receive prayer, we might just leave this area here, just open the prayer teams over there. If you'd like to receive and just start that trajectory of being full of the Holy Spirit, come and let these guys pray for you. And then let God have his way over the days and weeks that follow. But I've never seen, I think I mentioned it before, I've never seen any one person ever who's prayed that prayer, Lord, fill me with all the power you have for me. Lord, and and pursue this walk, not receive the gift of the Spirit and the anointing of God within a two-year, 24-month span. Takes all of us different paths in different ways, but each one, always, you will receive. He, He promises to give those gifts. Give yourself the time. Take that journey and receive that. Bless you. Do that. Don't go without prayer if you need it. Let's have some worship. Thanks, Kate.